1: I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. I am sure many of you have heard of mindfulness. Some of you may even practice it. A lot of you may have questions on why it's beneficial. How it can improve your life, and what might be the best way to actually strengthen this very important skill so many people are talking about. On today's episode of Looking Up, I'm talking to Diana Winston. She's a mindfulness author, speaker, and educator, and she's also the director at UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center. We talk about how mindfulness and curiosity intersect, the difference between mindfulness versus meditation how mindfulness can help us fight the feeling of being on autopilot, her experience as a Buddhist nun, self-compassion, how mindfulness can be an effective treatment for both physical and emotional pain, and she even takes us through a natural mindfulness awareness exercise the way that Looking Up works is we start with a rapid fire style questions. Okay. uh, Just as a way to get to know you a little bit more intimately and for people and myself to get to know you kind of past just the amazing work you do, but also just you as a human. So Mm. is there a book that you have read that has actually changed the way that you live your life?
0: It's funny, um, my daughter is now 11, and I was reading with her a book that I read as a child called, um, it's very familiar, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. You know that book? Yes. And I hadn't looked at it since I was about her age, and I was kind of amazed how influential it was on just how I thought about the world and who I was as a teenager and growing into young adulthood. So I was kind of
1: like surprised by that. People think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank.
0: (laughs) People think I'm peaceful all the time, but I'm actually a lot like everybody else.
1: (laughs) So use three words to describe yourself as a teenager, like in your high school years. I would say slightly nerdy, bookish,
0: creative.
1: Mm. When is the last time that you cried?
0: I think earlier today when I was. Reflecting on the state of the world and Mm. social, racial injustice, pandemic, the loss.
1: Yes, it's a lot. Okay, last one. What are three things that have brought you joy today? My dog this morning,
0: when he jumped on my bed and wanted attention, uh, let's see. My daughter gave me some joy and we were watching a really cool episode of a show she loved called The Babysitter's Club.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Is that still, is that like a, I mean, I read The Babysitter's Club when I was a kid. I didn't know that was like, ah, that's amazing. So no, they redid it. They um, updated it
0: and they redid it in a, like a series, 10 part series. And they really made it very like politically, socially aware and very diverse. And they changed it all up and we had so much fun.
1: That is so cool. I have to check that out. <laughs> um, so jumping right in to mindfulness, mm-hmm. because you are a mindfulness expert. And as I was sharing with you earlier, I kind of found my way into mindfulness through Thich Nhat Hanh and through my time as a grad student at UCLA and Through Sue Smalley and Dr. David Feinberg, who are my mentors, and the Mindfulness Awareness Research Center, which you are the director of, right? The education director. The education director Mm -hmm. um, currently. And being an expert in mindfulness, and I know so many of us have obviously heard the term, many of us have started a mindfulness practice, but there's a lot of us, I think, out there that even though they've heard of the term, they may not exactly know what it is. And so just in like a very, as simple or as complex as you want to get, I would love you to describe what is mindfulness?
0: So the definition that I use is paying attention to our present moment experiences with openness and curiosity and a willingness to be with that experience. So it's really about how can we be in the present moment? If we were to check into our mind at any point in the day, we're lost in the past, lost in the future, worrying about things, planning things, replaying, obsessing, going to great, catastrophizing. So mindfulness is this invitation back into this moment to be here with what is, with an open and curious mind.
1: I love that. So the part on being in the Present moment is just as important as looking at that present moment with this curious mind and sort of from a non-judgmental perspective. Does that sound right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I use I say willingness to be with what is. Some other mm. people say non-judgmental. It's the mm-hmm. same quality. This sort of accepting what is quality. Non-judgmental meaning. I mean, people judge all the time, so that's why I don't right. use that language because then they think if they're judging, they're doing something wrong. Right. But really, just Oh, my mind is judging. That's okay. There's judging there. Right. Um,
1: And can you enhance your mindfulness practice by sort of utilizing and checking in with all of your senses? That's one way to bring mindfulness into your life. So
0: oftentimes, like you sit down to a meal and you're just, Eating it as fast as you possibly can, not paying any attention to it. So it's very different than eating mindfully, which would be like really slowing it down a little bit, tasting every bite, noticing all the flavors, taste, texture, the sense, how it's affecting your body. So that's like an opening of our sensory, you know, sensory awareness to all sorts of experience.
1: Yeah. I remember one of the books that really sort of opened my mind to mindfulness and sort of utilizing it in the sense of like a practical everyday use. And it's also something I used a lot with my patients is touching peace. Uh And I remember there was a mindfulness eating exercise in there or even just a mindfulness showering exercise. And I I think I resonated a lot with some of those practices because they are things that we do every single day that can become mundane and sort of on autopilot. So like the way that our brain works is that we create these, our brain's so efficient that we create these really quick pathways to do things that we've done a hundred times. And we sort of just like go through it. And in some ways that's a positive. It's not utilizing as much brain energy as we need to. But in other ways, it's it's not so much and we're not noticing and we're sort of just letting life live for us instead of living it in the present moment. And so doing a mindful eating exercise was really powerful to me because it's something that you do anyway. And just taking a moment or a few moments to do that. Um, I remember leading an exercise like that at UCLA with some of the interns when I was a fellow. And it, it was just such a cool, interesting experience that really like you could describe mindfulness in so many different ways, but then like going through an actual um, practice of it is just a whole nother thing. So I think that sort of changed things for me. How would you say that mindfulness is different than meditation? I've kind of heard, I've heard other people talk about how it's different. I've heard other people talk about how mindfulness is a type of meditation. How are they related and how are they different? Okay. So mindfulness well
0: let's go back. Meditation. Meditation is kind of like a big category, like sports is a big category. There's hundreds of sports, there's dozens, maybe hundreds of types of meditation. And so maybe people have done transcendental meditation or some kind of movement meditation or prayer or walking a labyrinth, or these are all these different types of meditation. And mindfulness is one type. It's a category of like a practices that cultivate awareness. So there's lots of different types of mindfulness practice too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so mindfulness is, is, a, is a meditation practice. It's cultivated through meditation. And as what you were just pointing to, that's really important, is it's also a quality of attention that we could have at any moment in our day. So it's cultivated through meditation, but once we kind of get it, we can Mm -hmm. do it throughout the day. And so like you were pointing to mindful eating, washing the dishes mindfully, putting on your shoes mindfully, like we can bring it into our day, especially when we really need
1: it. This episode of Looking Up is brought to you by Murad. Murad Skincare, founded in 1989 by dermatologist and pharmacist, Dr. Howard Murad, is the first modern doctor brand of clinical skincare products setting a new standard for high-performance skincare. For more than 30 years, Murad has been committed to developing clinically proven, cruelty-free products that meet the meticulous standards for safety, efficacy, and care you'd expect from a doctor. Dr. Murad has spent his entire career and made it his lifelong commitment to conquer cultural stress, aka the stress of modern living, to help you lead a happier, healthier life. And you all know that this is something extremely important to us over here at Looking Up. This includes a whole body wellness approach, inclusive of skincare. Now more than ever, Murad wants to bring professional skincare to you. No dermatologist appointment or copay required. With Murad's newest skincare innovation, the Vita-C Triple Exfoliating Facial, which by the way, has become my new favorite product, Murad brings the results of a microdermabrasion facial straight to you. Murad's Vita-C triple exfoliating facial is clinically proven to smooth texture as effectively as a microdermabrasion facial in just one use. Voila, a glow of microderm facial at home. The Vita-C triple exfoliating facial is now available on murad.com. To find the best regimen for you, Take Murad Skin Quiz at www.murad.com skin dash quiz slash. New customers to murad.com receive 20% off their first order. To learn more and stay up to date with the brand, visit www.murad.com. That's www.murad.com. Or follow the brand on Instagram at muradskincare. So would you say that when we start practicing it sort of throughout our day like that, at some point, does it become, I don't want to say like unintentional because I think there is an intention to do it, but at some point with practice, it kind of becomes something that you just do on an easier level that doesn't require like, I'm going to sit down and have a very mindful practice experience right now. Is it something that can kind of just, when I eat my breakfast, if I do it enough, like I'll start to just do it.
0: Absolutely. It it becomes more embodied. It becomes Mm -hmm. more of like who we are, you know? So you do it in the beginning. It's like, what am I doing? How do I get myself to be mindful? And it takes a lot of effort and work. And then over time you start, well, a lot of my students, even when they're just starting out after a few weeks are saying, I just noticed myself spontaneously being mindful when I was talking to my kid or walking my dog or something. And it, it surprises them that over time, as they keep practicing more and more spontaneous moments of mindfulness and more living from that place, like really
1: embodying it. Do you think that all of us, all humans possess sort of the capability or ability to practice mindfulness?
0: Absolutely. I think the quality of mindfulness, that that sense of like resting in our sense of being, just being with what is, it's a human, it's a fundamental human quality. It's like part of all of us. We've all had the experience, maybe not every single person, but most of us have had the experience of like being in nature. And there's just a part of you that relaxes and you feel at peace and at home and or in the midst of athletic activity where you're in that zone or in creative activity or you know there's so many ways that we have accessed it the problem is that most of us sort of like it's like this oh special moment and then we don't really access it again and so mindfulness is really in some ways it's bringing people back to what they already know but giving them tools so they can replicate it and have more access to it
1: I love that. It kind of reminds me of something I heard you say in one of your talks. And I think you were talking about your daughter. And at the time, I think she was a toddler. And you were saying how she was actually pretty mindful and kids are pretty mindful. But over time, we sort of, I don't know if it's that we lose it or is it that we just get farther away from it. And we need to kind of be brought back to, to sort of what is already within us.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know either. But I think that's exactly the idea that it's for some reason, whether it's our our life stories, the challenges we go through, our education, or, you know, all of it, we lose touch with that ability to be connected. And so it's just, these are just like reminders back and it's not far away. It's never far away mm-hmm. to be mindful. It's just like in any moment. I mean, whoever's listening right now, if I were to just say, take a pause and just stop and take a breath and... Just slow down for a moment and feel your feet on the ground, and notice your stomach is it tense or tight? Just see if you can soften it and feel your body here, and and you're being mindful. And it wasn't hard. It's just right here, right? It's just right, right here. But life is so busy. <laughs> we're so caught up in things. We we definitely kind of, as you were saying, maybe step away, lose touch,
1: forget. So I love that, and my sort of passion in the work and optimism that I do is really sort of blending together holistic practices with real evidence-based science to really cultivate these practical, self-mastery, everyday type of tools that anybody can do uh, with resources that we already have that we kind of just either forgot we had or we haven't sharpened those muscles in a while. And so mindfulness, to me, has been a really big tool to actually increase optimism. And I know when we talk about optimism, we're actually kind of talking about the idea of anticipation and future directed thinking. And I know you were saying that mindfulness is you know, about the present moment and it's not about kind of going into the future and going to the past. But do you also agree that mindfulness can be a really beneficial and effective tool to increase happiness and joy and optimism and hope? Definitely. Yeah, yeah. And um, there's a lot of different reasons
0: why. I mean, what's interesting when we look at the research, sometimes when people have done some meta-analysis, they see that there might be different outcomes in a lot of the studies, but they all have this one outcome, which is that people report being happier or their quality of life improved. So like a lot of the pain studies, sometimes because mindfulness has been used quite significantly, especially in the early days, working with people with chronic pain. And sometimes there was symptom reduction, but almost always there was this sense of my ability to tolerate it has improved. So my quality of life has improved. So absolutely mindfulness is directly connected to that. It's also connected to what I see is people stop being on automatic pilot, and they mm-hmm. show up more for their lives. Like mm-hmm. they really, they're here more. They're more. They're like they're not missing out on life. And it feels like sometimes life gets so busy that we just, oh, what happened? The day is over. But people express more gratitude, more appreciation. And this one physician who had taken my class uh, a number of years ago, just in the beginning, the beginning level class, and he said he had lived on his street for 15 years, and he had never noticed that there were mountains at the end of the street until the until you take in the mindfulness class and so it's like this newfound ability to appreciate life and and then the last thing I'll say is there's a lot of associated practices with mindfulness they're not mindfulness per se but they're like we do practices that cultivate kindness that cultivate generosity that cultivate compassion and so these are also developing cultivate joy I mean there's deliberate practices you can do to cultivate joy
1: you kind of have talked about that mindful, there's a lot of different types of mindfulness practices. I have so many questions about this, but one of the questions that just popped up for me is, do you have a favorite type of mindful practice? And maybe you've gone through a favorite in different times of your life, but right now, do you have a favorite mindful practice that you sort of ritualize or do every single day?
0: Well, I try to meditate daily. I don't always do it, but I try to do it. And I usually, I've kind of there's something I've done for so many years that the second I sit down to meditate, boom, I just start noticing my body my breath and being present in this present moment, like just right away. But then, then it can shift from there. And so one of the things that I became interested in was teaching, there's a lot of ideas out in the kind of public domain that mindfulness is pay attention to the present moment your attention wanders you bring it back and this is so you're noticing your breath your attention wanders you bring it back and this is actually this is a great way to meditate it's really helpful it develops it cultivates attention it cultivates persistence it really teaches us present moment awareness but there's also a lot of practices that are not so well known that are more About relaxing into the awareness that's already present. And I call it natural awareness because it's really, it's really what we were pointing to earlier this kind of natural quality that's inherent in all of us. And this mindfulness is less like working so hard to be mindful and more just recognizing the awareness that's already here. And it's a more expansive, spacious, relaxed. Kind of awareness, mindfulness. And so, um, and that's what I've been teaching a lot in the last number of years and really love to practice myself because I find it to be just this real healing balm in this time. It's like accessing the fundamental goodness inside ourselves, this fundamental sense of well being. And because the world is so crazy right now, we need to have these resources
1: mm-hmm. inside ourselves. So, can you give us an example of a natural awareness? practice that we could all do right now. Sure. Okay. I need this.
0: So so just, just wherever you are and wherever people are listening, uh, if it's possible that you can close your eyes if you wish or not, and just, just settle back and take a breath or two and maybe take a moment to reflect on a time in your life when you felt Exactly what we're talking about, the sense of ease, the sense of well-being, just a, at home in yourself. And this could be when you were in nature, when you were doing sports, when you were with a dear friend, with a baby, with a pet. It doesn't have to be a dramatic example. It could be something really, really simple. Let's see if you can remember that time. Where were you? What... Did you hear and see, smell, taste? And what did it feel like in your body? What did it feel like in your body, this sense of being at rest, at ease, open, spacious, connected? And just take another breath and soften your body and allow that feeling to be here, to be present for you. See if you can notice what it is that is here the awareness that's already present. It's already present. It's just right here for you. And then whenever you're ready, we'll keep going with our conversation, but it gives you a taste. You can open your eyes whenever you feel like it.
1: That felt really good. I do this type of practice a lot. I guess I didn't know that's what it was. I sort of, I I teach visual imagery and sensory based visual imagery and that is sort of in my in my practice but I don't often get to sort of go through it with somebody else kind of leading me through it I'm usually the one leading it and so I think it's been and I and I promised myself especially at the start of everything going on this year that I was going to start to do a little more of the things that I teach <laughs> Uh-huh. And of course, that's tough. But I realized right now that it's been a little while since I have kind of gone in and gone there. And I i don't know if anyone else out there had a similar experience, but I started sort of wanting to change where I went multiple times. Like mm-hmm. at first, the first thing I thought of was just today. I guess a lot of firsts in a long time have happened today. But I did a little bit of yoga outside today because my family was just like we're really worried about you you are working really hard right now and we have a tod my husband and i work are working from home like so many people out there and we have a toddler and it's a lot like this whole time is a lot for many different reasons um but one of them for us is i feel like this whole pandemic kind of got branded at the start as this like the big slowdown and like oh you can utilize this time to do all these things that you have always wanted to do and, you know, take the time to really slow down and maybe pick up some, some new practices. But for some of us, it has been the exact opposite and, you know, without childcare and other forms of help and having to do all the things we were doing anyway, but then extra things and, (laughs) you know, just not even having a moment to, take a few moments to breathe. I did a little bit of my parents were like, you literally need to do this. We will help you just go outside and like do a little bit of yoga. And I did. And the first thing I went back to was this morning laying on a mat outside. And what I saw above me were palm trees swaying just the, le- just the leaves because I hadn't laid on the floor outside mm-hmm. and looked up. And I felt the ocean breeze and I felt like I heard at least six different types of birds chirping. And then I quickly was like, wait a second, I want this experience to be something to do with my child. (laughs) Like I found myself trying to direct the experience. And I was like, I felt almost like a little bit of pressure or guilt, like this experience of feeling that should be something to do with my child. And then I was like trying to flip through my mind, like a memory book of like and then I was like, but remember you like this happens, but like now just return to the experience. And then the last thing I went to was, you know, a moment that was from when I was dating my husband and it was in his apartment such a long time ago in Hollywood. And we were sitting in front of a crackling fire and it was wintertime and his room was an absolute mess. And it was just so comfortable. We were literally laying on the floor which is interesting that I went through a lot of laying on floor experiences. Mm -hmm. But even though I went through all of that and I know it takes practice, it's like so interesting because this is the type of stuff that my clients will tell me and then I'll walk them through what that is and how it's totally fine. But even with all that, it was already made me feel like more connected to my joy. This episode is brought to you by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for sustainable, high-quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at an affordable price. Everything from coffee to toilet paper and shampoo to pet food. Public Goods is your new everything store, thoughtfully designed for the conscious consumer. Rather than buying from a bunch of single product brands, Public Goods members can buy all of their premium essentials in one place with one beautiful, streamlined aesthetic. Public Goods searches the globe to find clean, healthy, eco-friendly, and innovative products. Some of the products that we're really loving here at our house is the all-surface cleaner, the lavender sanitizing hand wipes, the hand soap. I also really love their essential oils and their candles. And I've definitely been known to snack on their chocolate-covered almonds all day long. They ethically source and obsessively develop each of their products to be free of unhealthy ingredients and harmful additives still common on drug and grocery store shelves today. They're really committed to making their products healthy and safe for humans, animals, and the environment. We worked out a really awesome deal for looking up listeners. Receive $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They're so confident that you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again that they're willing to give you $15 to spend on your first purchase. Plus, right now, receive your choice of either a free pack of bamboo straws or reusable food storage wraps with your order. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com/slash looking up or use the code looking up at checkout. That's P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash looking up to receive $15 off your first order. My question for you is for people that are really wanting to start from somewhere and maybe they've never done it before and they really want to start a mindfulness practice. What is like the easiest way in?
0: I start people off in a really simple way. You know, I start people off with five minutes of meditating a day because everybody has time for five minutes. um, I think at least. And what I recommend for most people, it's helpful to have some guidance. So, an app or recording. We have a UCLA mindful app that starts with you with a five minute meditation. We have tons of meditations on that. And just the simple practice that I was speaking to before of just being with your breath, your attention wanders and coming back. That practice of doing that over and over teaches you the foundational skills of learning how to be in the present moment. And then it expands from there. There's a lot more to learn from there, but those are the, that's the, that's the basics of getting started.
1: I like that too, because it also feels like it increases your ability for like self-discipline or just like, you know, like a lot of times when I work with clients or especially when I used to work with patients, a lot of the times there would be this, like, I can't control what I think or what I feel. I'm just like, there's, I don't control that. And just an example of you controlling like the idea of breathing. And if your mind wanders and coming back to the breath and continuously coming back, it's sort of an evidence. Like I like to think of it like a coin in the pot of like, well, you just did that. And sort of this building of self-mastery and confidence in your ability to harness these tools and these skills and how I think after enough practice of it, you start to probably do them in other ways in your life, you know, that actually change the way in which you are living your life. And so I think those are so powerful. And even though it's a simple thing that maybe like you start with, I feel like it's these really simple practices that are like life changing. I always try to do five minutes. I I say that too, like in the morning, my husband and I would do it together and we've fallen off the, the wagon a little bit right now. So that this conversation just reminds me to get back on. And and that's kind of okay too. We're going to fall off sometimes, but I love, I just keep coming back to what you said about it's not that far. Because I think sometimes when you do practice something like this, and then you haven't for a while, you kind of just feel like it's like exercise. Like oh, I haven't exercised in so long now. It just feels too far. And how can I get back on it? But literally this can be like, I just did a practice with you and I'm already back on. So That's so beautiful. When you went to Burma and you became a Buddhist nun, which Mm -hmm. I want to hear more about, but particularly how did you navigate sort of the silence and self-reflection while you talk about having this like very, very fast running mind? And I guess that's really just applicable to all of us right now, especially. But how did you at that time and what was your experience there? (laughs) And what led you to that? (laughs) Um, yeah, so this was a number of years ago, but I,
0: I had been meditating with a teacher, a Burmese teacher. I mean, I'd been practicing. I started meditating in India and then Thailand, and then I came back to the States and started doing meditation retreats of long periods of time, like a couple of months at a time in the United States. And then I met this Burmese master who was like my teacher's teacher, and I started meditating with him. And he would say, come to Burma, come to Burma, you can be a nun under me. Now, in the Southeast Asian Buddhist countries, you can ordain as a monk or nun for a short period of time. You could do a day, a week, a month, a year, or a lifetime. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, whatever you want. So I just suddenly got, not suddenly, but over time, got excited of the idea of I could practice in the original form that it was done, that had been done for countless, countless, you know, centuries, right? And so I decided to go and I went to the monastery where my teacher was and I, he wouldn't let me ordain right away. He said to me, actually, in response to what you're saying, he said, your mind is not stable enough to <laughs> meditate for a month and then I'll let you ordain. So what I did, what it meant by ordaining was that I shaved my head and I wore robes and you could only eat two meals a day before 12 o'clock. And I had to give away my possessions, which I didn't do. I put them in storage. And... <laughs> I um, lived this life for this year where I practiced meditation all day long. So I devoted my life to to this practice that I loved so much that I found so tremendously interesting and helpful. But anyway, that's a little bit of it. I'm happy yeah. to
1: answer more. Well, I think I'm so interested in how did you bring that sense of calmness back into your life when you've returned to the States and you're sort of more fast moving life as it is, how do you bring that calmness back when you're not at a monastery? How do you bring that in and and manage sort of life while living in the life that you're living in and like dealing Mm -hmm. with things like 2020? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: No, that's the like really important question, right? Yeah, Yeah. Because it's easy to go away from it all and meditate. and Even though I will say when I was there, it wasn't like, it was all blissful or peaceful or something because you take your mind with you wherever you go. And so I was lonely and I got sick and I had a hard time and I had to learn self-compassion because I wasn't very compassionate to myself. But when you're in supportive conditions, you're going to have, your mind can... It's gonna be one way. So a condition this condition was I removed myself completely from my regular life. I stopped my job. I stopped I didn't at that point have kids or anything. You know, I just was in this isolation in a community totally dedicated to meditative practices. Right. And so because I was in those conditions, my mind went deep into my meditation and it was profound. And what happened there, there were transformative things that happened that I think changed me so that when I came back, that was just like a new part of Who I was. So just to say, those tools are what's helping me survive the pandemic and teach Mm -hmm. others. It's that the ability to regulate my emotions, the ability to know myself, the equanimity, the even-mindedness, and balance that I feel is at the core of where I am in the world right now. Like that is what is helping me survive. It doesn't matter that uh, that um, I'm not in the monastery.
1: I really feel though that mindfulness awareness practices or things like that actually are amazing ways to shift your mood and your experience. And it can literally shift in a matter of seconds. And even if you, even if it only lasts for, I don't know, it shifts you and lasts for the next half hour. But then what's so cool is that you can do it again. And I just think that it's been a really powerful tool for at least me and my family. And I'm really hoping that the listeners out there can hold on to that. And and even if it's you know something that is 15 seconds, I promise that's been my whole new thing for this whole time. Is that? And I really started in motherhood, but there's no time that's small enough to do something. Mm. And you know, if it's for me, I, I people that follow along or have heard me, they know that I use music and dance a lot to get mm-hmm. lost in the moment. And if it's half a song or a quarter of a song, or if it's doing a breathing exercise or a mindfulness awareness exercise or a natural awareness exercise, even for 20 seconds, 30 seconds, like those seconds seem short and seem like they wouldn't be a big deal, but they literally shape my entire day. And they like are the only way that I I can keep going. Mm. So I think that's so so amazing and so powerful. I wanted to ask you a question about mindfulness is sort of kind of like gratitude in the sense that I feel like a lot of people have now heard about it. It's sort of become a little more widespread and sort of this you this word that gets used a lot. And I'm wondering, what do you think is the most misunderstood concept or, th- or definition or um, thing about mindfulness that you kind of hear over and over, or do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest is people use mindfulness as an all encompassing word to mean kind of healthy or holistic yes. or something. And it's really that's not what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is this very specific quality of attention. So when you hear someone like, I'm a mindfulness Insta- Instagram influencer, and mm-hmm. here's my mindfulness today I ate a bowl of, mm-hmm. you know, hemp cereal and chia seeds or something, that is not mindfulness. Yeah. <laughs> that is, I don't know if that is whatever, but I mean, it's not bad. It's just not mindfulness. Right. So I think that there's, in as it gets popularized, yes. it, it loses some of it. And I don't like, there's certain aspects of it as it gets, it gets commercialized. Mm-hmm. Um, I worry about, people who are not qualified teaching it. So I've done a lot of work in trying to create standards for the field, professionalize what it means to be a mindfulness teacher because yeah. right now anybody can just set up a shingle. Like I took a weekend workshop and I'm now I'm teaching mindfulness and that's not really
1: no other field do we do this. So- You would be surprised. <laughs> yeah, okay. Many fields I mean, I, found, <laughs> I totally like- um, I don't practice traditionally anymore, but, you know, as someone that has a doctorate in clinical health psychology and, and you know, all the training and all the hours and and all of it, you know, anyone can kind of just be like, I'm a coach. And it's the same thing. Like I I think for nutritionists too, it's like if you just post like a gluten-free meal on Instagram, all of a sudden you you maybe you're a food coach. Right. Or if you like, you know, helped someone visualize their like perfect life in their mind, you might be a life coach now. That is, there's just, right. it, it, it's been amazing in the sense that I think I'm so glad some of these things have become popular. I, I like how cool that self growth is popular. Like that's amazing. But it also as like a clinician or someone that came from that background, it is, it's a little bit scary too. When you're dealing with real people's lives and emotions and the brain health and emotional health, it's it's a little frightening too. And I think that's really great and amazing at the work that you guys have been doing You know, to sort of have a level of a standard and some credentials in it and really to protect what it truly means, because that's true. I have heard sort of just anything and everything related to mental well-being or emotional well-being or even physical well-being is just like mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. For some of the people that start a mindful practice and sort of experience some discomfort while beginning cuz you know when you start something that ultimately is good for you a lot of times it it's painful and have you experienced that with some of your students and how would you describe that what are some common discomforts that people might feel when they start and what are sort of some of the roadblocks and how do you help them to persevere through
0: the one thing I will say is that mindfulness is really helpful for physical and emotional pain. So, If you stick with it, not only will you learn like how to redirect your attention to the present moment, but you'll also learn tools for working with difficult thoughts and difficult emotions and difficult body sensations because, and those are like invaluable, you know, how do we use mindfulness to hold and be present with grief, with fear, with anxiety, with rage, with like, we can, there are practices that you really learn. So it's worth sticking with it for those Mm -hmm. types of reasons.
1: One of the things that I remember when I visited the Mark Center so many years ago in the early 2000s, and I was listening to, to Sue speak, something that blew my mind, and partly it's just because I was a grad student and I still am just like a brain nerd, a self-proclaimed brain nerd, was some of the neurological like brain health benefits of mindfulness and what the science was really saying. And I remember she talked a lot about the idea of neuroplasticity. And we know that, you know, children's brains are growing and and brain cells are forming all the time. And I think for a long time, we were sort of under the impression, please correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm remembering something from many years ago, but that like adults' brains don't really have the ability to kind of expand. But then with mindfulness and a lot of the research and studies out there at that time, we're saying like actually mindfulness is a way that can actually for adult brains do that. And is that still what the literature is confirming and saying? And can you build on that? What is science and research really saying to us about the benefits of mindfulness right now?
0: Some of the brain science looks at like What's happening in an fMRI during uh, some activity, and how meditators compare to non-meditators? And there's like what parts of the brain are lighting up? And mm-hmm. you know, one was looking at the st- looking at people who were seeing fearful, uh, fearful or or disgusting images, and that part of the brain would light up, and then the prefrontal cortex would come online when people would be mindful in the midst of seeing the fear or the or the um anger. So it's really um
1: there's a lot of interesting stuff out there. Something that comes up a lot for me when I'm hearing about this is that idea of like mindfulness helping us to be able to problem solve because that prefrontal executive functioning um mm-hmm. even in the midst of negative things happening or things that might derail us. So I think that's interesting and another thing that comes up for me when you were even going through the exercises is that Mindfulness, at least for me, seems to be such a great way to put people back in touch with their intuition, which is such a, like a big part of our brains are devoted that gray matter to the ideas of, you know, intuition and and being able to, to utilize that. And a lot of us are forgetting or not able to connect with that. And so mindful practices, even Like, help us use our brain better for what our brain is supposed to be doing and meant for. So, I think that's so interesting. I wanted to ask you a sort of last question, which was Is there, out of all, I know you've been teaching this for so long and you've had so many students, and is there a story or a couple stories of an experience in your teaching with a student that really sticks out in how mindfulness helped them or sort of like the arc of, seeing, you know, a mindful practice really change a student's life in a way that like really inspired you? It's interesting. You know, I
0: get letters from, or emails from people all around the world all the time who say, oh, I did these practices Like, because I have a lot of audio recordings online and people will listen to them. And um, I get these amazing stories. Someone just recently sent me some of them about going through a cancer diagnosis and doing the meditation in the fMRI and having like feeling just like totally present and peaceful in spite of all the fear. Um, I hear stories of people whose relationships get improved and Mm -hmm. people who say like, my my spouse doesn't even recognize me. They're wondering like, what happened to me since I started doing this? Um, One of my favorite stories from a long time ago was someone who, an older woman who has had very, very high blood pressure and her doctor said, go go learn to meditate and she went to our classes and then she went back and her blood pressure had dropped so significantly the doctor thought there must have been something wrong (laughs) and then then she became like a really serious meditator it stopped having to do anything with her blood pressure but she just started loving it so much that it became part of her life so I get these incredible stories and I'm so grateful to hear ways that people are able to just live life with more peace and ease
1: are there Ever times that you've experienced when mindfulness was difficult for you to to sort of grasp, like, have you had difficulty in certain times of your life use mindfulness?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So I've been practicing for 30 years, which means that's given me a lot of opportunity to do well and not so well with it. Yes. Um, and my time in Burma was really hard because I was working so hard at it, at it and I didn't find this quality of this natural awareness like that was not present. It was more like, if I can work harder, then I'll succeed at meditation versus just learning to rest in the present moment. And I had to make a really big shift so from like a goal orientation to a non-goal orientation. And that was like a profound shift for me with my practice. Right now, the edge for me is is teaching in this time where there's so much injustice, and mm-hmm. making sure that my teachings are not about teaching people to passively accept what is. and, yes. and even though acceptance of what is is kind of inherent in the def- in the definition, but also it, I'm really interested in that quality of like the more we can recognize the truth of what is, the more we can act with clarity and with wisdom and with compassion. But I think that it can turn into this like, oh, I'm just, everything's all good. Let's meditate,
1: you know. And Yeah, that's such a good point. How do you navigate and teach within that? Because yeah, it's this idea of accepting the way things are, but what if the way things are are not acceptable?
0: Right. No, this is exactly it. This is the huge kind of conundrum for teaching in this moment. And so how do we not, how do we hold both? It's a paradox, right? It's, and it's like more than the brain can take. How can I, how can I accept this? But this is not acceptable. That's really, you just said it. And to answer your question from before, this is something that I'm really deeply grappling with so that I can more and more teach it. And I feel like I'm in a big learning curve with it in a whole new way. But I think it's not about either or, it's about both are true mm-hmm. and we need these deep inner resources to be able to handle what is and to step forward and fight for justice or mm-hmm. you know speak truth to power or whatever it is we need but but to doing it from a place that's so profoundly resourced and it that and it, and is willing to be with what is and that, well there's this famous quote that's that's um, from a Zen master who says things are perfect as they are and they could use a little improvement, mm-hmm. and so it's both, like it's it's holding both true. Even though I mean if that's certainly a huge understatement, but mm-hmm. it's, it's very interesting. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's a huge conundrum, and sort of I I think it's interesting how you said it's almost too much for the brain to process yeah. within that through this learning curve, and as you're going through it, when you come up with some great ways to sort of teach people to accept what is, and then also to work through and fight for what is unacceptable, please follow up and let us know. Okay. (laughs) Because that is the big thing right now. And I think everyone needs to put their heads down or look within and try to literally answer that because that's, that's, what's going to help us through. So please share that with us. I wanted to ask you one last question. Um what is looking up? What is something that you can share with our listeners? I know I'd love for you to share a little bit about your book, The Little Book of Being, and also your involvement in the International Mindfulness Teachers Association and then anything else that, you know, you're working on right now or in the future that we can check out. So what's looking up?
0: I'm best found in what my work is through the Mindful Awareness Research Center. And we're, we're you know, we've had to transition to virtual like everybody else. And we, are doing a lot of interesting things online. Like I just led a four-day meditation retreat online where people practiced from their homes and even in the midst of their toddlers and their mm-hmm. their jobs. And um, and that seems to me like a really interesting place because I used to take people away like I did in Burma. We would go to a beautiful center and meditate. But finding And are that, they
1: doing it all day?
0: Yeah, mm-hmm as much as they can. Right. Yeah. And the people who are quarantined alone, I mean, it works Mm -hmm. great for people who don't, we figure out how to make it, make
1: it work, you know, how to make it work in the midst of life. Ooh, a question just popped in to me. Mm -hmm. Sorry. When people are starting out and if they ask, is there a time, like amount of time that is sort of the sweet spot of, how many minutes a day to be starting off in a mindful practice. Is there, has there been any research on some of the benefits in terms of duration?
0: They don't have, the scientists haven't figured that one out. I mean, there's been some studies they've seen brain changes and 27 minutes a day for eight weeks, but that's just a study. I like people, I say, start with five minutes, and then slowly work your way up to 10, 15, 20 and people tend to, I think, find that 15 to 20 is a good amount of time. So, yeah, just in terms of other things that are moving forward, just, just we're creatively working with what we have at our center and trying to teach mindfulness and offer it into offer it. We're offering it in all different ways. We're looking at bringing it in more into underserved communities. We're partnering with with other organizations that would love to see mindfulness right now. You know, I speak and teach about mindfulness in a variety of contexts and, you mentioned the IMTA, the International Mindfulness Teachers Association, which is the project I mentioned before where we're really trying to build the standards and professionalization mm-hmm. for the field. I've been training mindfulness teachers for the last 10 years, and that's a really important thing for me so that the field is filled with people who are really Wonderful, qualified, and you know, serving their communities. And then you mentioned my book, the little book Mm -hmm. of being, which has all those glimpse practices. So if you're interested in natural awareness, that's what that little book of being is.
1: And yeah, I can't wait to get my hands on that one. And I'm sure a lot of the people out there too that just want a place to start from and have sort of a little bit of time—not a lot of time—to start with. And these glimpse practices sound perfect. So it's called the little book of being. And um, you can also find Diana at the Mark Center, the Mindfulness Awareness Research Center at UCLA. And the last thing that we do to close up looking up is I, I wish we were together because then you would pick your own card. But I have each of my guests pick a card at random. I'll pick it for you from my own things are looking up optimism deck of cards. And it's sort of a joke that you didn't know. But Every single guest on this podcast leaves with a little bit of homework. (laughs) So it's (laughs) just a prompt or suggestion that I'll pick at random that you get to take with you for the day and carry it out. All right. Find a way to positively impact, inspire, or encourage someone today, whether it is a child, a colleague, a family member, a friend, or a new acquaintance. Remember, a positive impact can mean many different things. Just pick anything that would be helpful and encouraging. So, Can we say that just
0: being on this podcast, I did it already? Okay, yeah, good. good! Yes, you can.
1: You okay, can good. definitely say that. Exactly. No more homework. <laughs> no more homework. No more homework. Um, thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about mindfulness and even taking us through some exercises and breaking it down in an easy um, way to sort of digest and make sure that we're all defining it correctly, and also getting our mindfulness information from the right resources as well, which is so important. Thank you for getting me back on the wagon (laughs) today. I really appreciated your time.
0: Well, my pleasure. It was so nice to talk to you. Great questions. Thank you so
1: much. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info and how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.com. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Our theme music is Me and Shaw Day by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.